Good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning and um, how refreshing it was to hear your proclamations of praise and exaltation to the Lord this morning. It was good to hear your voices, good to hear uh, the praise just pour out of your heart. And God is so worthy of it. And it was just so encouraging to me to hear that. And sometimes what we say out loud um, to the Lord is a little sign of maybe what is in our heart. Maybe what we've been struggling with or different things. Uh, I, I liked such as God, our sustainer. You know, that might be a testimony from somebody who has had a, a week where they just really had to lean on God for sustenance. I like the reminder of God who leads us out of the darkness. He's the God of light. He speaks light into the darkness. And that certainly applies to the text that we will look at this morning in Peter. But it's good to hear your voices. It's good to know that God's work and God's kingdom is among us. Before I read um, our text this morning and just kind of introduce it, I just want to look at things from a little bit of a different angle this morning. Because I know that I do this every Sunday and I bring you sections of God's word. And uh, Kevin prayed, Pastor Paul has a message. And as he said those words, I was just so grateful that the message that I have is really God's message. It's not Pastor Paul's message. And that's what Kevin was referring to when he talked about truth. Because there's so many different messages out there in the world today. But we get to hear God's word. A message of truth. So we're in the book of 2 Peter. Obviously this is the second letter that Peter has written to this community of faith. And what popped into my mind is what kind of things... May these people have been thinking about or challenged with or absorbed with in life the day the letter came. They get this second letter from Peter. And this is gold. If you're, if you're a believer in the New Testament era and the apostles are writing letters because you know they are people of God. They were chosen by Christ. So when you get a letter, or even if it wasn't written to, you, read to you, or written to you, but what they did was they passed these letters around from church to church, community to community, because this was gold. But what was going on in their hearts and minds the day they received this second letter? Perhaps thinking about, do I have enough wood for the winter to get me through the winter? Just everyday life things. I've got all these dishes I got to wash today from entertaining last night. Perhaps they were thinking about, the parents were thinking about different struggles that their children were going through at the time. Maybe they were thinking about jobs, losing a job or the, uh, the hope of getting a job or a promotion of some kind. Maybe some were thinking about having to crunch the numbers to make their bills work. Maybe some were thinking about the weather. When's it ever going to be sunny again? Everyday burdens. Do I have enough in the pantry? Is it going to dry out so that I can get my crops in the ground this year? Things that we face in life. I would imagine that's what was consuming them. That's what they were thinking about the day they received this letter. And then they got the letter. 
And you better believe that when they receive these words from Peter, things change. Because now something, there's something else to savor. There's something else to think about. Because God's word, they would react this way because when we hear God's word, it's designed to change us. It's designed to redirect our thinking. It's designed to refocus us in all the things that we brought in here today that are real life, good or bad, really don't take on much meaning until we hear what God has to say about them. And that's what makes them flourish. And we get to read and think about, meditate on Peter's words as well. And we're going through it. And I'm trusting that God is speaking to our hearts through each verse and each passage as it comes to us. And that it deepens our faith and that it changes, challenges us and yes, changes the way that we live. One of the things that Peter has challenged the people with so far is to make sure that your election is sure. Make sure your calling is sure. What's, why is he encouraging the saints to think about that? Because he realizes that there are people that may think they're saved and they're not. And do you know anybody like that? These are real life issues. People that made a confession. But there hasn't been any supernatural change of thinking, life, and things that are valued and prioritized. He's reminded us so far that there is, we live in a world that has this strong cultural current of evil. That's real life. You know what that means to us? That means that everybody in here, between last Sunday and this Sunday, in some way, felt the pull of the culture of evil. Of the spirit of evil. It's always there. Sometimes it's manifested in greater ways, lesser ways. But we have all been tempted this week in one way or another. We have all been enticed, our flesh, in one way or another. And evil seems to know our weaknesses. So these are practical things He's aware that there are some people who think they're saved and are not. He's aware that this is important because there's this cultural pull. There's this tug all the time at you to join the rebellion, so to speak. The rebellion against God. And he knows that this is what they're faced with. And it's worth it to him. Uh, We've already read where he knows that his days on the earth are limited. And it's worth it to him to talk about these particular things To this community of faith. So his answer to not being taken away or pulled by the current of evil is that you are actually making every effort in the opposite direction. You're pursuing and seeking God. And he listed several virtues. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Virtue with knowledge, self-control. So um, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love. So he's saying these are the things when you concentrate on these, this is what propels you forward and also saves you from the pitfalls of evil. And so Christian, Christianity is a very active thing. It's a progressive thing, lest we drift away. I find it interesting that Peter doesn't focus on our past confession to make our election or our calling sure. But he says, look at your life. What are you engaged in? What are you thinking about? What are you hungering for? 
That's what that's where your security comes from, not some confession you made at three or five or ten or twenty. So this this is a uh, Christianity is something that transforms us, it consumes us, and there are little little steps taking toward God. Eternal life is not a guessing game. I've spoken to people before who will say, I, I, hope I'm go- I hope I'm going to heaven. And eternal life is not intended to be a, a guessing game. I've written these things to those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. I think that's 1 John 5.13. And there's other verses, John 5.24. God wants us to be sure. So Peter reminds them and then he re-reminds them. And I want to point something else, but something else out before we read our text. And it's a very key word in this book. And we know that the, the overall theme is growing in the grace and knowledge of God. So that's why Peter's kind of pushing us. And that's why I'm kind of pushing you guys here to be on the move towards Christ. Don't get taken away by the current. That's Peter's momentum here. He said in verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. That word established keeps popping up in this book. And it means uh, to, to be firm and strong in your attitude and belief. So you're, you're getting stronger. You're, 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 your roots are more deeply established, particularly in the attitudes and the beliefs of the faith. So you're not just reading God's word, but you're, you're thinking about it deeply. And you're, let it, you're letting it seep in deeper into your life. That's how it is established. He's speaking to a people that are established. So the first thing I want to comment on this is that that's pretty unique compliment to this group of people. Because if you've read the books of the New Testament, the letters to the churches, sometimes the apostles come at them, you know, boots on the ground. These believers are immature. They're, they're acting up. They're acting as if they weren't saved. They're not established. They're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So this is quite a compliment to this group of believers. It says, I know you are established. You, you know God's word. You have God's word. And, and you're growing in your beliefs and your attitudes. You're not letting the currents of, of evil take you away. But there's another thing that I find very interesting about the fact that Peter keeps using this word established. And that is that, you know, in the book of Acts, it tells us how do people get established? How are these churches growing? What's the difference between maturity and immaturity? Well, God sent the apostles out, Christ sent the apostles out to preach the gospel. That's what has the power to save, not the apostles, the gospels. And they preached the gospel, people embraced the gospel, and then they, they taught God's word, God's ways. It's not just like one message of how to get saved, it's a whole life system. What to think, how to believe, what to be doing with your days and your life. And so they brought that to the people. And that's how they got established, by realigning their lives to God's law and truth, which is what we strive to do here as a church. Now, here's what interests me about this particular word. Do you remember Peter, 
um, wasn't always the best example of faith. Peter was impetuous. He was very zealous. But he couldn't always back it up. And he denied the Lord, even though he said, if anybody denies you, it's not going to be me. Not going to happen. And circumstances presented themselves in such a way where this strong man caved and he denied the Lord. And here's what Jesus had to say to him after this in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is after the denial. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That word strengthen is establish. So it's, it's so intriguing to me that it is very, very likely that Peter is the reason this church was established in the first place. He wrote the first letter. We know that because this is the second letter. So I, I think it's pretty safe to say that it was Peter's ministry. It was his preaching, his discipling, his mentoring that brought them to this place of being established to begin with. And that he was driven to do that because of his own life experience and what Christ spoke into his life. Peter, you failed. You blew it. But you're turning. You're learning from it. And from this, you're going to be even stronger and wiser, more reliable. And when you come out of this stronger, because that's my intent for you, I want you to take these truths and life experiences and apply them to other people, share them with other people so that they can get strong in the Lord. And I think that's what Peter has done here. And so it's no wonder to me that he uses this word so often. I want you to be established because he knows what it's like to not be established. Or he knows what it's like to think and be, be sure that you're established and you're not established. How interesting this ministry of Peter's. So these words are for a church or a community of believers that are mature and established. They're the ones in particularly that need to be paying attention. I would venture humbly to say that that's us. You know, our church has been accused of a lot of things over the years, stereotyped in a lot of different ways. But to my knowledge, one thing that we've never been accused of is not being a people of truth. We've been accused of not, a, of not doing uh, the practical things of the faith before. But I'm not aware of any time where somebody has visited this church and come away saying, you're not going to find truth at that church. So I think that in our Sunday school classes that we're not having right now, but when we did, everything about this church, I think, was rooted and established and grounded in God's truth. And that's who Peter is writing to, people just like us. I want to read our passage this morning in verses 16 through 21, and it's about God's truth and God's word. I'll take two sermons to get through these 
verses. This is the first one. Let's read chapter 1, 16 through 21. This is what Peter had to say to this community. So now he's talking about himself. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Myths versus truth. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his his, uh, majesty. So this is something that Peter feels very necessary in order for this group of people to remain established. They need to be re-reminded of the coming of the Lord. And he's referring to the second coming of the Lord. Uh, there, is a fir- there was the first coming that already took place. So this is the parousia, the second coming of the Lord. This is important, he says, for them to think right, to live right, to, to press in with to, to God in order for them to grow in grace and knowledge. It's this understanding and anticipation of what Scripture calls the day of the Lord when he returns there's a song that I heard uh, years ago and has a chorus, something like this. People get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. It just repeats that. People get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. You see how that one truth that Jesus is coming just altered your whole life? What does it mean? The second coming of Christ. What is this truth? How does it impact us? Well, it means we have something to be ready for. But it also means that if you're a believer, you're going home. So Peter says this is important here. And when he talks about the second coming, he brings up the idea of myths. Why? Because just like today, in that day, there were people that would take God's word and they would misunderstand it. They would misinterpret it. They would say, well, this is true, this part of Christ's life and death and resurrection was true, and this part isn't true. And then they they cloud it with with hearsay and myths and folklore and stuff, just like we have that going around today in different capacities. It went around in the churches in that day. You know, folktale, a a legend, uh, something like, um, you know, for us in our American history, you would hear about Paul, Paul Bunyan and his exploits. I think the Blue Ox and John Henry and his exploits. With, so that you take figures and sometimes these folklores, they're, they're inspirational and they can be used to teach morality and, and to teach good things. They could also be used to teach 
um, bad things, different folklores and legends and so forth. And myths have their place. Of course, you have Greek mythology and everything else. Myths have their place, but their, their place is as myths. That's their intention, not as truth. And so we can't combine the two. Because when you dilute the truth with a partial truth or a myth, then you are messing with God's truth. And so it's important for us to be firmly established in the reality that Christ is returning. The second coming. It's extraordinary. Peter brings this event up. And it's, it's powerful here to him. It's powerful for him to think about Christ's return, in particularly because he was present when he says, I, we saw him. He was present when Jesus leaked out, if you will, some of his heavenly glory. And if, if when Peter saw that, it was such a supernatural experience unfathomable experience that he knows that when that figure who this Christ who's now emptied himself of that he's containing this glory he's purposing not to manifest it in that way but now he is man God is man but when he comes back he will come back with that kind of glory unmasked and he just can't imagine how powerful that moment will be. So he's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. He doesn't want any speculation about who Christ really is, what he's capable of, what he's done and what he will do. Speculation or theory or myth or folklore or anything to ruin it or dilute this powerful truth. God is real. He's true. He's a God that you can know. In this world. And that's why Peter keeps calling us to press in to know the God that can be known through his word. John Piper says, full-blooded Christian faith does not flourish in ignorance. Sex flourish, S-E-C-T-S, sex flourish in ignorance. Interesting comment because a sect is something that it, it's a, a, out of the, the larger group, say, of a religion and a faith. And all religions have different sects. It's when you have the large body of belief that makes you that thing like Christianity, for instance. But then you have a smaller group of people who will take some of these truths and they, they will choose not to believe in some or they'll alter some. They'll misinterpret or pervert some, and they'll say, here's what we believe. So it's taken out of that main teaching, but it's wrong. They might even still believe some of the truths that are correct, but it's significant enough to not any longer actually be a true representation of the original faith or belief. It's a sect. And you have to be careful of these things, and they flourish among people who don't have not been established and don't know the truth. And when you don't know what God's word says, because you haven't taken the time to grow in it, then you make yourself vulnerable to these kind of false teachings. You say, wow, that could, yeah, I think I read that somewhere in God's word. That sounds very compelling. I, I believe that. 
And so people are taken away. And that happens even today. Sometimes it has not a very good ending. So it's an offshoot. And it has to do with ignorance there. Promoting that. Something I think I'll mention that we need to be careful of in our day that's a little bit similar are conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories are a big thing now. They've always existed, but now they're a big thing. And the only reason I even mention conspiracy theories is because what's happening in our culture right now is that conspiracy theories that usually kind of stay outside of the faith are kind of morphing into an, uh, a pseudo-important part of Christianity. In other words, there are conspiracy theories out there that are finding their way into the church and becoming an important part of how we should think, what, how we should be spending our time, what we should be doing with our life. There's a, in particular, one called QAnon. Maybe you've heard of it. And I would say, warn you that it's a very dangerous this group of conspiracy theories related to QAnon. I really don't even like to mention it and draw attention to it, except for the fact that it has found its way into the Christian church. And conspiracy theories are based on things that could be true but aren't and are unsubstantiated. And when we don't take the time to dig a little deeper, then we can get caught up into them because they're designed to be enticing. They're designed to throw the net out and catch us in them. And there's enough truth in them to cause us to perhaps believe it. And QAnon started as political conspiracy theories, but what happened is it seeped its way into the church. How so? Because it was drawing a big difference between good and evil in our nation politically. There are evil people out there and there are good politicians out there. And it presents this big fight that's going on. And because the church is all about good and evil, well, it's easy for us to get involved in a fight when it has to do with good and evil. But the problem is that this fight is not as clearly substantiated as what they say it is. So some of the things that... Uh, I'm not, I really haven't studied it well, but let me just give a big brief and then I'm going to move it on. Move on. So this particular conspiracy theory claimed, and it, it's always changing its story because you can't substantiate it. It's based on lies. You have to keep changing your story and come up with another lie to make the first lie look like maybe it was true. But anyway, it was a conspiracy claims that, that former President Trump was working with the military to save the nation and uproot the, the cabal. Uh, an organization of Satan worship, child sacrifice, sex trafficking that many famous celebrity, celebrities and politicians are secretly a part of. And it continues to morph because when they come out with a story that showed some supposed secret meeting that was taking place, it comes out that that didn't happen. So then they have to show another picture. Well, yeah, but that's because it happened over here and so forth. But it's that's the way sex work. It's the way false teaching. It's the way deception works. It divides people. It misleads people. And of all people, Christians need to be on the lookout for these kind of things. Because we are a people that say we stand for truth. And the truth that we have came from heaven, from God. God has spoken. God is real. And we want to establish ourselves. Another example, you think, have you ever um, tried to witness to a Jehovah's Witness? It is exasperating. 
Why? Because they don't, they're, they're not trained to think. They're not trained to be able to refute the truths that you might challenge them with. They have, they've, they've been told what to believe. And so when you bring out a scripture, they look at a scripture and say, here's, here's why that we need to get ready for the Lord. And, when you, and here's why Jesus isn't God. You know, and you bring out scripture that shows he is God. They're not even going to go there with you. They're going to bring out the next scripture they were trained. They're not interested in debating about truth. They've been told what to believe and what to think. It's, it's frustrating. And it's sad. It's sad that people get caught up in false teachings. And it has an inter- eternal impact. Now, when Christ comes back, he comes back in truth. And just like the parables that he taught us, we already have what we need to believe. There's not anything extra coming. We, we're surrounded by truth. We're surrounded by opportunities. Yeah, we're surrounded by false teaching, but we have lots of opportunity to sink our teeth into God and live for him zealously. And when he comes back, we will face All of that will will come before us and we'll see, oh my goodness, I was bewitched. When Christianity goes forth, by the way, historically, it doesn't leave destruction and ignorance and so forth. Historically, do you know what Christianity leaves behind wherever it goes? One of the hallmarks is education. So when the missionaries went out, they didn't just bring the gospel because truth is so important to Christians. They planted schools so that kids could learn to read and think and reason for themselves and be awestruck with the God of truth. And hospitals as well. So Peter, in essence, is saying, let me just tell you how I know Christ is coming back in power. It's because I saw that power. He's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw what Christ can be when he leaks out his glory. And it is fierce and it's powerful and it's unstoppable. And when he comes back, it's not going to be hidden. It's going to be manifested. In Matthew 17. For whom, in verse, that he's, the Mount of Transfiguration was in Matthew 17. But here's what he's telling us in our text. For whom he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. So he saw this glory. He heard the voice from heaven. And in essence, it, it's what, what happened when Jesus invited the inner circle up on the mountain to, for a time of prayer is that it was a supernatural event, and yes, it was a transfiguration. And you know that Christ came to earth as man. He was truly man, truly God, but he emptied himself of his deity. He, he, he chose not to act in that manifestation, but to act truly as man, the second Adam. And so he had to, he, he wrapped himself in man flesh, if you will, to hide the glory. But he's still a glorious being. But what happened on the Mount Transfiguration is, in a sense, God decided it's time for a little bit of it to leak out. 
so that the inner circle could see what they were really dealing with, that this is truly God, complete with all of the glory. And, and Peter was awestruck when he saw the light and he heard the voice from heaven and he got a glimpse of, you, if you will, of Jesus' spiritual muscles that he had been hiding. It's, it's as if, you know, you, 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 somebody who you know is strong and then they take off their shirt and they're incredibly ripped. Jesus was ripped in glory. And Peter saw that he is unstoppable. What do you do with something like this? Nothing but join it. And he's warning the people. He's reminding the people when he comes back, it's not going to be the suffering servant. It's going to be the Mount of Transfiguration Jesus. That form with light and power and glory who is absolutely unstoppable. And we need that to seep in and be ready for that and anticipate that. People get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. And of all things that Peter could have referred to regarding the power of God, he didn't, he didn't say we need to anticipate this because of Jesus rose from the dead. He walked out of the tomb. Or even because of the ascension, which was a powerful thing. He refers to the Mount of Transfiguration where the glory oozed out. For just a moment, changed his life. It's truth, not myth. And based on that power, everything Jesus says he's going to do, he has the power to do and is in fact doing. And then, what I call truth and more truth, second verse 19, we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. It's the prophetic message. You have the prophetic message. You have the, the, the word of God, the prophets, the historical writings, the Psalms. He's talking about primarily the Old Testament because that's what they had most of in that day. And he's saying, not only do you have my eyewitness experience, but the reason my eyewitness experience occurred is because it was predicted. Everything that God says is going to happen is going to happen. And you can find things unfolding as you study and get to know God's word. You can expect things to happen because he has revealed himself. And the world works in a certain way because that's how God has determined for it to work, And so not only did I see, should we anticipate the second coming, but he's already warned us about it. We, we celebrate this in a lot of our Christian holidays. You have prophecies in Malachi and Isaiah and so forth. He has come and he will come again. It's written in the word of God. So pay attention. Pay attention to the days that we are Living in and pay attention to the explicit word of God. There's so much out there that we get distracted with. It's it's like maybes and ifs and it's not explicit. We don't really know for sure, but there's so much in God's word that is plain and explicit for us. More than enough to captivate us in this. And he draws our attention to it. And what are we paying attention to? What are we distracted with these days? What's most important? What are we really even getting ready for? 
What's our main thrust in life? Is Jesus coming back? Are we ready? Will he come back in our day? I don't know. It would be nice. And Peter will talk more about that in the end of why it's taking so long for God to come back. But what are we captivated with? Where is our hope? And then lastly, truth and light. You'll do well to pay attention. Why would we do well to pay attention to the Word of God and anticipate the second coming? Because it's like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter, of all people, gets a little poetic here. He's painting a picture for us of the urgency to pay attention. And the picture he paints is, is a picture of nighttime. You know, the world that we live in, in a sense, it's nighttime. And he's referring to the darkness. And yes, there's the light of Christ. But it's in the midst of the darkness right now that we live in that does prevail. It's reality. And so as believers, yes, we have to live under a sense of darkness and sin and the evil that the world is, is covered in, all the, the deeds of the flesh and greed and malice and so forth. And because we live in the dark, the picture is you've got to be careful because you'll stumble. You can stumble in the dark. Uh, whenever we have a guy's retreat, one of the things we do out here is play, most of the time, play capture the flag out in that field. And it's at night. That's what makes it exciting. And almost every time somebody's coming in the church, limping, you got any Band-Aids? What happened? I ran into a tree. Or I didn't know that stake was out there. You know, always getting hurt because it's a game that's played at night. And when we can't see, we stumble. When we had our power outage at our house, I had a generator, so I had some lights. that didn't. It wasn't a whole house generator. So we had some lights, but the lights in my bedroom didn't work. Um, and then I had placed a chair by my bed to put my clothes on because there's a few times I got up at night to put gas in the generator. And so I just wanted my clothes right there instead of having to go in the closet where I keep them. And then one night... Um, I had to go into the bedroom for something, and it was dark. And I said to myself, I'm tired of carrying that little flashlight around. I'm not carrying that flashlight. I know where I'm going. So I walk to, I'm walking towards my bed to put my, my uh, cup of water on my nightstand, which is my nightly routine. And so I'm walking in there, and I forget that I had put a chair there because that wasn't my routine. I run right into the chair. Down I go. The water spills everywhere. I forgot the chair was there. It was dark. I couldn't see it. See, we run into things. We can get hurt in the dark. We, we stumble over unexpected, you know, metaphorically unexpected temptations. I didn't know that was going to be there. Unexpected enticements, flipping a page or, or clicking on a website. Unexpected lusts or, or greed. Or, and, and the way that we survive is I should have had my little flashlight. That would have never happened. And so Peter says, look, here's, here's the way. You do live in a dark world. There's evil out there. There's sin out there. But God is the light in this dark world. God's word. It's, it's a lamp unto our feet. 
So we want to step as we navigate into this world. That's what we want to be focusing on, the light of God. That's how we know where to go. That's how we avoid avoid these things and the spirit of the age. And that's what leads us to anticipate the second coming of Christ. A few verses I'll close with. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Jesus promised, just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the the final challenge is, where are we today? What, What path are we on? What light have... We placed over ourselves what hope, what direction, what voice have we placed ourselves under to guide us where we want to go? What teachings are we absolutely counting on to take us where we want to go? What truths or teachings are we counting on to deliver us from evil and from temptation? And who is worthy of our best efforts. What is capturing our attention in this world that is not suffering from a lack of drama? But what's the main story that we're after? These are big life questions. We exist to exalt God, edify the saints, and evangelize the lost. Here's how we do it. Just like what we're doing right here this morning. We're listening. We're paying attention to God. We're longing for the things of God. We're pleading, God, keep me from temptation. Don't let my heart wander. I am weak and I am depending on your strength to get me through. That's how we build on the rock. And we have built on the rock this morning. May God bless the preaching of his word.